Chapter Four, Part One of *The Stones of Venice*, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Wayman. *The Stones of Venice*, Volume Two, by John Ruskin. Chapter Four, Saint Mark's, Part One and so barnabas took mark and sailed unto cyprus if as the shores of asia lessened upon his sight the spirit of prophecy had entered into the heart of the weak disciple who had turned back when his hand was on the plough and who had been judged by the chiefest of christ's captains unworthy thenceforward to go forth with him to the work how wonderful would he have thought it that by the lion symbol in future ages he was to be represented among men how woeful that the war-cry of his name should so often reanimate the rage of the soldier on those very plains where he himself had failed in the courage of the christian and so often die with fruitless blood that very cypriot sea over whose waves in repentance and shame he was following the son of consolation that the venetians possessed themselves of his body in the ninth century there appears no sufficient reason to doubt nor that it was principally in consequence of their having done so that they chose him for their patron saint there exists however a tradition that before he went into egypt he had founded the church at aquileia and was thus in some sort the first bishop of the venetian isles and people i believe that this tradition stands on nearly as good grounds as that of st peter having been the first bishop of rome but as usual it is enriched by various later additions and embellishments much resembling the stories told respecting the church of murano thus we find it recorded by the santo padre who compiled the vite dei santi spettanti alle chiese di venezia that st mark having seen the people of aquileia well grounded in religion and being called to rome by st peter before setting off took with him the holy bishop hermagoras and went in a small boat to the marshes of venice there were at that period some houses built upon a certain high bank called rialto and the boat being driven by the wind was anchored in a marshy place when st mark snatched into ecstasy heard the voice of an angel saying to him peace be to thee mark here shall thy body rest the angel goes on to foretell the building of una stupenda ne più veduta città but the fable is hardly ingenious enough to deserve farther relation but whether saint mark was first bishop of aquileia or not saint theodore was the first patron of the city nor can he yet be considered as having entirely abdicated his early right as his statue standing on a crocodile still companions the winged lion on the opposing pillar of the piazzetta a church erected to this saint is said to have occupied before the ninth century the site of st mark's and the traveller dazzled by the brilliancy of the great square ought not to leave it without endeavouring to imagine its aspect in that early time when it was a green field cloister-like and quiet divided by a small canal with a line of trees on each side and extending between the two churches of st theodore and st geminian 
as the little piazza of torcello lies between its palazzo and cathedral but in the year eight hundred and thirteen when the seat of government was finally removed to the rialto a ducal palace built on the spot where the present one stands with a ducal chapel beside it gave a very different character to the square of st mark and fifteen years later the acquisition of the body of the saint and its deposition in the ducal chapel perhaps not yet completed occasioned the investiture of that chapel with all possible splendour st theodore was deposed from his patronship and his church destroyed to make room for the aggrandizement of the one attached to the ducal palace and thenceforward known as st mark's this first church was however destroyed by fire when the ducal palace was burned in the revolt against candiano in nine hundred and seventy six it was partly rebuilt by his successor pietro orseolo on a larger scale and with the assistance of byzantine architects the fabric was carried on under successive doges for nearly a hundred years the main building being completed in ten seventy one but its incrustation with marble not till considerably later it was consecrated on the eighth of october ten eighty five according to sansovino and the author of the chiesa ducale di san marco in ten ninety four according to lazari but certainly between ten eighty four and ten ninety six those years being the limits of the reign of vital falier i incline to the supposition that it was soon after his accession to the throne in ten eighty five though sansovino writes by mistake ordelavo instead of vital falier but at all events before the close of the eleventh century the great consecration of the church took place it was again injured by fire in eleven o six but repaired and from that time to the fall of venice there was probably no doge who did not in some slight degree embellish or alter the fabric so that few parts of it can be pronounced boldly to be of any given date two periods of interference are however notable above the rest the first that in which the gothic school had superseded the byzantine towards the close of the fourteenth century when the pinnacles upper archivolts and window traceries were added to the exterior and the great screen with various chapels and tabernacle work to the interior the second when the renaissance school superseded the gothic and the pupils of titian and tintoret substituted over one half of the church their own compositions for the greek mosaics with which it was originally decorated happily though with no good will having left enough to enable us to imagine and lament what they destroyed of this irreparable loss we shall have more to say hereafter meantime i wish only to fix in the reader's mind the succession of periods of alteration as firmly and simply as possible we have seen that the main body of the church may be broadly stated to be of the eleventh century the gothic additions of the fourteenth and the restored mosaics of the seventeenth there is no difficulty in distinguishing at a glance the gothic portions from the byzantine but there is considerable difficulty in ascertaining how long during the course of the twelfth and thirteenth centuries additions were made to the byzantine church which cannot easily be distinguished from the work of the eleventh century being purposely executed in the same manner two of the most important pieces of evidence on this point are a mosaic in the south transept and another over the northern door of the facade the first representing the interior the second the exterior 
of the ancient church it has just been stated that the existing building was consecrated by the doge vital faliere a peculiar solemnity was given to that act of consecration in the minds of the venetian people by what appears to have been one of the best arranged and most successful impostures ever attempted by the clergy of the romish church the body of st mark had without doubt perished in the conflagration of nine hundred and seventy six but the revenues of the church depended too much upon the devotion excited by these relics to permit the confession of their loss the following is the account given by corner and believed to this day by the venetians of the pretended miracle by which it was concealed after the repairs undertaken by the doge orseolo the place in which the body of the holy evangelist rested had been altogether forgotten so that the doge vital faliere was entirely ignorant of the place of the venerable deposit this was no light affliction not only to the pious doge but to all the citizens and people so that at last moved by confidence in the divine mercy they determined to implore with prayer and fasting the manifestation of so great a treasure which did not now depend upon any human effort a general fast being therefore proclaimed and a solemn procession appointed for the twenty-fifth day of june while the people assembled in the church interceded with god in fervent prayers for the desired boon they beheld with as much amazement as joy a slight shaking in the marbles of a pillar near the place where the altar of the cross is now which presently falling to the earth exposed to the view of the rejoicing people the chest of bronze in which the body of the evangelist was laid of the main facts of this tale there is no doubt they were embellished afterwards as usual by many fanciful traditions as for instance that when the sarcophagus was discovered st mark extended his hand out of it with a gold ring on one of the fingers which he permitted a noble of the dolphin family to remove and a quaint and delightful story was further invented of this ring which i shall not repeat here as it is now as well known as any tale of the arabian nights but the fast and the discovery of the coffin by whatever means effected are facts and they are recorded in one of the best preserved mosaics of the north transept executed very certainly not long after the event had taken place closely resembling in its treatment that of the bayeux tapestry and showing in a conventional manner the interior of the church as it then was filled by the people first in prayer then in thanksgiving the pillar standing open before them and the doge in the midst of them distinguished by his crimson bonnet embroidered with gold but more unmistakably by the inscription dux over his head as uniformly is the case in the bayeux tapestry and most other pictorial works of the period the church is of course rudely represented and the two upper stories of it reduced to a small scale in order to form a background to the figures one of those bold pieces of picture history which we in our pride of perspective and a thousand things besides never dare attempt we should have put in a column or two of the real or perspective size and subdued it into a vague background the old workman crushed the church together that he might get it all in up to the cupolas and has therefore left us some useful notes of its ancient form though any one who is familiar with the method of drawing employed at the period will not push the evidence too far the two pulpits are there however as they are at this day 
and the fringe of mosaic flower work which then encompassed the whole church but which modern restorers have destroyed all but one fragment still left in the south aisle there is no attempt to represent the other mosaics on the roof the scale being too small to admit of their being represented with any success but some at least of those mosaics had been executed at that period and their absence in the representation of the entire church is especially to be observed in order to show that we must not trust to any negative evidence in such works m lazari has rashly concluded that the central archivolt of st mark's must be posterior to the year twelve o five because it does not appear in the representation of the exterior of the church over the northern door but he justly observes that this mosaic which is the other piece of evidence we possess respecting the ancient form of the building cannot itself be earlier than twelve o five since it represents the bronze horses which were brought from constantinople in that year and this one fact renders it very difficult to speak with confidence respecting the date of any part of the exterior of st mark's for we have above seen that it was consecrated in the eleventh century and yet here is one of its most important exterior decorations assuredly retouched if not entirely added in the thirteenth although its style would have led us to suppose it had been an original part of the fabric however for all our purposes it will be enough for the reader to remember that the earliest parts of the building belong to the eleventh twelfth and first part of the thirteenth century the gothic portions to the fourteenth some of the altars and embellishments to the fifteenth and sixteenth and the modern portion of the mosaics to the seventeenth this however i only wish him to recollect in order that i may speak generally of the byzantine architecture of st mark's without leading him to suppose the whole church to have been built and decorated by greek artists its later portions with the single exception of the seventeenth century mosaics have been so dexterously accommodated to the original fabric that the general effect is still that of a byzantine building and i shall not except when it is absolutely necessary direct attention to the discordant points or weary the reader with anatomical criticism whatever in st mark's arrests the eye or affects the feelings is either byzantine or has been modified by byzantine influence and our inquiry into its architectural merits need not therefore be disturbed by the anxieties of antiquarianism or arrested by the obscurities of chronology and now i wish that the reader before i bring him into st mark's place would imagine himself for a little time in a quiet english cathedral town and walk with me to the west front of its cathedral let us go together up the more retired street at the end of which we can see the pinnacles of one of the towers and then through the low grey gateway with its battlemented top and small latticed window in the centre into the inner private-looking road or close where nothing goes in but the carts of the tradesmen who supply the bishop and the chapter and where there are little shaven grass plots fenced in by neat rails before old-fashioned groups of somewhat diminutive and excessively trim houses with little oriel and bay windows jutting out here and there and deep wooden cornices and eaves painted cream colour and white and small porches to their doors in the shape of cockle shells or little crooked thick indescribable wooden gables warped a little on one side and so forward till we come to larger houses also old-fashioned but of red brick 
and with gardens behind them and fruit walls which show here and there among the nectarines the vestiges of an old cloister arch or shaft and looking in front on the cathedral square itself laid out in rigid divisions of smooth grass and gravel walk yet not uncheerful especially on the sunny side where the canon's children are walking with their nursery maids and so taking care not to tread on the grass we will go along the straight walk to the west front and there stand for a time looking up at its deep pointed porches and the dark places between their pillars where there were statues once and where the fragments here and there of a stately figure are still left which has in it the likeness of a king perhaps indeed a king on earth perhaps a saintly king long ago in heaven and so higher and higher up to the great mouldering wall of rugged sculpture and confused arcades shattered and grey and grisly with heads of dragons and mocking fiends worn by the rain and swirling winds into yet unseemlier shape and coloured on their stony scales by the deep russet orange lichen melancholy gold and so higher still to the bleak towers so far above that the eye loses itself among the bosses of their traceries though they are rude and strong and only sees like a drift of eddying black points now closing now scattering and now settling suddenly into invisible places among the bosses and flowers the crowd of restless birds that fill the whole square with that strange clangour of theirs so harsh and yet so soothing like the cries of birds on a solitary coast between the cliffs and sea think for a little while of that scene and the meaning of all its small formalisms mixed with its serene sublimity estimate its secluded continuous drowsy felicities and its evidence of the sense and steady performance of such kind of duties as can be regulated by the cathedral clock and weigh the influence of those dark towers on all who have passed through the lonely square at their feet for centuries and on all who have seen them rising far away over the wooded plain or catching on their square masses the last rays of the sunset when the city at their feet was indicated only by the mist at the bend of the river and then let us quickly recollect that we are in venice and land at the extremity of the calle lunga san Mose, which may be considered as there answering to the secluded street that led us to our english cathedral gateway we find ourselves in a paved alley some seven feet wide where it is widest full of people and resonant with cries of itinerant salesmen a shriek in their beginning and dying away into a kind of brazen ringing all the worse for its confinement between the high houses of the passage along which we have to make our way overhead an inextricable confusion of rugged shutters and iron balconies and chimney flues pushed out on brackets to save room and arched windows with projecting sills of istrian stone and gleams of green leaves here and there where a fig-tree branch escapes over a lower wall from some inner cortile leading the eye up to the narrow stream of blue sky high over all on each side a row of shops as densely set as may be occupying in fact intervals between the square stone shafts about eight feet high which carry the first floors intervals of which one is narrow and serves as a door the other is in the more respectable shops wainscoted to the height of the counter and glazed above 
but in those of the poorer tradesmen left open to the ground and the wares laid on benches and tables in the open air the light in all cases entering at the front only and fading away in a few feet from the threshold into a gloom which the eye from without cannot penetrate but which is generally broken by a ray or two from a feeble lamp at the back of the shop suspended before a print of the virgin the less pious shopkeeper sometimes leaves his lamp unlighted and is contented with a penny print the more religious one has his print coloured and set in a little shrine with a gilded or figured fringe with perhaps a faded flower or two on each side and his lamp burning brilliantly here at the fruiterers where the dark green watermelons are heaped upon the counter like cannon-balls the madonna has a tabernacle of fresh laurel leaves but the pewterer next door has let his lamp out and there is nothing to be seen in his shop but the dull gleam of the studied patterns on the copper pans hanging from his roof in the darkness next comes a vendita fritole e licori where the virgin enthroned in a very humble manner beside a tallow candle on a back shelf presides over certain ambrosial morsels of a nature too ambiguous to be defined or enumerated but a few steps farther on at the regular wine-shop of the calais where we are offered vino nostrani a soldi ventotto a trentadue the madonna is in great glory enthroned above ten or a dozen large red casks of three-year-old vintage and flanked by goodly ranks of bottles of maraschino and two crimson lamps and for the evening when the gondoliers will come to drink out under her auspices the money they have gained during the day she will have a whole chandelier a yard or two farther we pass the hostelry of the black eagle and glancing as we pass through the square door of marble deeply moulded in the outer wall we see the shadows of its pergola of vines resting on an ancient well with a pointed shield carved on its side and so presently emerge on to the bridge and campo san moise whence to the entrance into st mark's place called the bocca di piazza mouth of the square the venetian character is nearly destroyed first by the frightful facade of san moise which we will pause at another time to examine and then by the modernizing of the shops as they near the piazza and the mingling with the lower venetian populace of lounging groups of english and austrians we will push fast through them into the shadow of the pillars at the end of the bocca di piazza and then we forget them all for between those pillars there opens a great light and in the midst of it as we advance slowly the vast tower of st mark seems to lift itself visibly forth from the level field of chequered stones and on each side the countless arches prolong themselves into ranged symmetry as if the rugged and irregular houses that pressed together above us in the dark alley had been struck back into sudden obedience and lovely order and all their rude casements and broken walls had been transformed into arches charged with goodly sculpture and fluted shafts of delicate stone and well may they fall back for beyond those troops of ordered arches there rises a vision out of the earth and all the great square seems to have opened from it in a kind of awe that we may see it far away a multitude of pillars and white domes clustered into a long low pyramid of coloured light 
a treasure-heap it seems partly of gold and partly of opal and mother-of-pearl hollowed beneath into five great vaulted porches sealed with fair mosaic and beset with sculpture of alabaster clear as amber and delicate as ivory sculpture fantastic and involved of palm-trees and lilies and grapes and pomegranates and birds clinging and fluttering among the branches all twined together into an endless network of buds and plumes and in the midst of it the solemn forms of angels sceptred and robed to the feet and leaning to each other across the gates their figures indistinct among the gleaming of the golden ground through the leaves beside them interrupted and dim like the morning light as it faded back among the branches of eden when first its gates were angel-guarded long ago and round the walls of the porches there are set pillars of variegated stones jasper and porphyry and deep green serpentine spotted with flakes of snow and marbles that half refuse and half yield to the sunshine cleopatra-like their bluest veins to kiss the shadow as it steals back from them revealing line after line of azure undulation as a receding tide leaves the waved sand their capitals rich with interwoven tracery rooted knots of herbage and drifting leaves of acanthus and vine and mystical signs all beginning and ending in the cross and above them in the broad archivolts a continuous chain of language and of life angels and the signs of heaven and the labours of men each in its appointed season upon the earth and above these another range of glittering pinnacles mixed with white arches edged with scarlet flowers a confusion of delight amidst which the breasts of the greek horses are seen blazing in their breadth of golden strength and the st mark's lion lifted on a blue field covered with stars until at last as if in ecstasy the crests of the arches break into a marble foam and toss themselves far into the blue sky in flashes and wreaths of sculptured spray as if the breakers on the lido shore had been frost-bound before they fell and the sea-nymphs had inlaid them all with coral and amethyst between that grim cathedral of england and this what an interval there is a type of it in the very birds that haunt them for instead of the restless crowd hoarse-voiced and sable-winged drifting on the bleak upper air the st mark's porches are full of doves that nestle among the marble foliage and mingle the soft iridescence of their living plumes changing at every motion with the tints hardly less lovely that have stood unchanged for seven hundred years and what effect has this splendour on those who pass beneath it you may walk from sunrise to sunset to and fro before the gateway of st mark's and you will not see an eye lifted to it nor a countenance brightened by it priest and layman soldier and civilian rich and poor pass by it alike regardlessly up to the very recesses of the porches the meanest tradesmen of the city push their counters nay the foundations of its pillars are themselves the seats not of them that sell doves for sacrifice but of the vendors of toys and caricatures 
round the whole square in front of the church there is almost a continuous line of cafes where the idle venetians of the middle classes lounge and read empty journals in its centre the austrian bands play during the time of vespers their martial music jarring with the organ notes the march drowning the miserere and the sullen crowd thickening round them a crowd which if it had its will would stiletto every soldier that pipes to it and in the recesses of the porches all day long knots of men of the lowest classes unemployed and listless lie basking in the sun like lizards and unregarded children every heavy glance of their young eyes full of desperation and stony depravity and their throats hoarse with cursing gamble and fight and snarl and sleep hour after hour clashing their bruised centesimi upon the marble ledges of the church porch and the images of christ and his angels look down upon it continually that we may not enter the church out of the midst of the horror of this let us turn aside under the portico which looks towards the sea and passing round within the two massive pillars brought from st jean d'acre we shall find the gate of the baptistery let us enter there the heavy door closes behind us instantly and the light and the turbulence of the piazzetta are together shut out by it End of chapter 4, part 1